Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. This Latin phrase was rooted in the Reformation. Literally means this the church reformed, always reforming. I think this is important to remember that the Reformation is not a once off event. The intent behind that Latin phrase from the reformer's standpoint was not to have a single event that caused a change or a break from the Roman Catholic Church, but to have the church constantly change towards the standard. They recognized that the church was not where it was supposed to be due to the corruption that was so prevalent in the Catholic Church. So there were many things that was in the Catholic Church which God had not sanctioned. What the Reformation recovered was the gospel according to God. The church moved away from the standard, not only in gospel, but also in practice. The formers realized this But they also knew that they were only the starting point of the Reformation. And we often forget that. When we think about the Reformation, we only think of that singular event where uh, Martin Luther goes to the door in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, and nails his 95 Thesis to that door, sparking the initial desire was to spark a conversation with the leaders of the church due to the corrupt nature of the sale of indulgences. Luther wanted to see reform with regards to certain aspects, but the reformers as a whole realized that, hang on, there are a lot of things that need to change, but fundamentally our conviction concerning Scripture, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that needs to change. And so the Reformation began. What this Latin phrase, the church reformed, always reforming, does not mean is novelty and newness. It doesn't mean that the church is trying to be like the culture, trying to be like the world, trying to adopt new things to make it a little bit more relevant. When a church becomes relevant to the world, it loses its biblical relevancy. That's not what is in view. Ecclesia, reformata, semper, reformanda instead means that the church should always be moving back to the standard of Scripture. Always be moving to what God desires of His people. And this is often forgotten. I'm going to upset a lot of Reformed churches this morning. Because what I think has taken place in the Church of Jesus Christ today is that we have not continued the inception or the desire of the Reformers. We have not continued on the reforming work that God has begun in the Reformation. But we've become stagnant and instead, in certain cases, 
returned back to Rome. When I, call, when I say Rome, I mean the Roman Catholic Church. There are two important categories that are instricably, instricably linked to the Reformation, without which there will be no Reformation and there will be no true Church of Jesus Christ. The first is this, a return to Scripture and God, they're both connected. The Reformers recognize that the Church needs to understand what it means to have the Scripture as authoritative, hence sola scriptura. The Reformation was more than just a recovery of the biblical doctrines of grace. The Reformation was aimed at an ongoing reform of the church because of the pervasive distortion and deformation of the church of Jesus Christ in the Roman Catholic era, commonly known as the Middle Ages. It is not only moved away from the orthodox gospel, but it also moved away from orthopraxy. The two are connected. You cannot have orthopraxy that is living an orthodox life without an orthodox gospel. And so the reformers realized that fundamental element that must be recovered is the priority of the word of God. Having a high view of scripture. Without having a high view of scripture, there is no true recovery of the gospel. Without a recovery of the gospel, there will be no redemption in your eternal life and in your practical life. That's both salvation and sanctification. So at the heart of the Reformation was the commitment to sola scriptura, scripture alone. The engine that drove the Reformation was their unrelenting commitment to the fact that Scripture is the standard. And that is what we need to get back to. Now, I find it difficult as I look on the horizon of the evangelical church that there are those who claim sola scriptura but then add into sola scriptura other things that believers need for life and godliness. It's hard for me to agree with somebody that bows down to catechisms, that bows down to liturgy, that bows down to all these things which are essentially Catholic and say, no, I believe in Sola Scriptura. What do we mean when we say we, we believe in Sola Scriptura? Well, in this church, we mean that the word is sufficient in all its components with regards to salvation and sanctification. It can produce salvation and that's in repentance and also a change of life that honors God. Therefore, you need nothing else. Are theologies, systematic theologies helpful? Sure. But it is not essential for your growth. What is essential for your growth is what? The Word of God. Are catechisms help, helpful? Sure, they are. But that's not essential for church life and existence. What is essential? The Word of God. You may know the situation here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra found the scrolls, the book of the law. He found the word of God. And it was a special moment in the life 
of these people. After finding this book, Ezra recognized that God speaks in this book. There was something divine about its origin, something unique about its nature. Ezra was so impacted that he was convicted in his heart to pursue a reformation. Something has to change in the life of Israel. This is the biblical reformation that has taken place. Look at verse 8. I'm going to back up to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. He's standing on a podium. And as he opened it, all the people stood. That is why we stand when we read the word of God. And Ezra blessed the Lord, Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. That is just the mere reading of Scripture. I I love the fact that when Scripture was read, they said, Amen, And amen. Something that is missing from the church today. I'm not asking for amens. Just saying. I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. (laughs) The reading of the word of God caused or evoked the natural response of worship. You get that? It was the mere opening of God's word that commanded them to not only hear, but to respond in worship. Look down at verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That is what expository preaching is. Take note. They read from the book of the law of God clearly. So there was a reading of scripture. They gave the sense. Explicate is the idea. Explaining the intended meaning of the word. That's all that Ezra did. So that the people understood the reading. What is primary in the study of scripture? Those women who did Bible study with me, how to study the Bible. What is primary in the study of scripture? Understanding, not application. How do we approach the Bible? What does it mean for me? What is it saying to me? And a lot of times the question is, what is the application? Wrong question. The mere reading of the word of God created, evoked an application which was worship. You will see later on as well, the same thing happens. Application is a natural result of understanding the word of God. We put the horse before the cart when we seek application without understanding. Go back to, or rather, go down to verse 13. That was the first day. 
Notice what happens the second day. On the second day, the heads of the fathers, these are the leaders, are, um, of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to what? Study the words of the law. They heard it. He gave the sense and they recognized there is something divine about this book. We want to go for ourselves and look into it and study it for ourselves. Why? Because God speaks in His Word. They recognize that by the mere reading of God's Word. Scripture causes reformation. Jump down to verse 14. And they found it written in the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. I'm going to pause over there. Their desire was to know what God requires of them. They read the Bible or the law and they found out that God requires them to build booths. Verse 16, so the people went out and brought them, this is the people, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and the courts and in the courts of the house of God in the square at the water gate, in the square at the gate of Ephraim. What happened? Read the word, studied the word, and immediately there was a reaction. Well, if it says we need to build booths, what on earth are we doing? Let's build the booths. So here's where the challenge comes in. Often when we read the Old Testament and we think of application, we think, well, should I be building a tent? What on earth? How does that relate to me? Okay, let's dial back a little. What is God requiring of Israel? Not specifically the booths. What is his requirement of all, for all of the commands? I think it's Hosea 2 verse 3 says, For the Lord does not require sacrifice and offerings, but obedience. Obedience. They heard the word, they read the word, they studied the word, and immediately there was an obedient response. So obedience in their context, build the booths. Obedience in our context is, you don't need to build tents because you're not a Jew. Please don't go live out in the bush and build booths. That is not it. But everything that God requires of us as his people, that is what we ought to do as his people. Obedience to the clear commands of God. If he says it, do it. Now again, we are not the children of Israel. We are not commanded to build booths, but God clearly commands us to obey His word. Faithful obedience. Paul says it this way. He preached the gospel of God concerning Son to bring about the obedience of faith. So that you would have obedient faith. The gospel, the scriptures in and of itself is not just informational. It is life-changing. It brings about a natural obedience in the faith that God provides. Listen to Luther. Quote, God forbid that there should be one jot or one tittle 
in all of Paul, which the whole church universal is not bound to follow and keep. End quote. All that God command, commands, we are bound to obey. It is that simple. Even in the Old Testament, it is that simple. Luther understood that the Bible is not simply the dissemination of knowledge or understanding or information. But the Bible, being a divine book, changes the one who reads his book. It has and makes assertive, authoritative claims over the one that has submitted himself to God. So when we speak of both the perspicuity, that is the clarity of Scripture, and the authority of Scripture, we are speaking about God speaking in the Word and having the right to claim things from us. And that is not charismatic claim, but to demand things from us. When the reformers speak of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, they speak about the self-authenticating power of scripture, scripture to change the lives of those who are exposed to it. That's why they were so committed to get the Bible into the hands of God's people. Because this changes lives. In chapter 9, we're not going to read through it, but chapter 9, the people read the law and they repent of their sin. Why does that take place? Because the word of God has the power not only to sanctify, but also to save. I loved what Hilton was praying uh, this morning. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. While the Reformation points us back to the Bible, that was the whole goal, to point us back to Scripture, it seems that we are deforming, un reforming the church to look more like what the Catholic Church is. For instance, ecumenical associations have increased over the last few years. We believe in the authority of Scripture, but at the same time, we want to join hands with Catholics and those who are closely aligned with Catholics. There's a slow and gradual movement back to a unified, ecumenical, global, Catholic church. We speak of unity, but unity at bereft or um, at the cost of the truth. Why? Because we've elevated association above truth. We want to be liked by people because we don't want to offend people. If we offend people, then we won't be liked by people. And so you've got the cycle of compromise taking place because we consider man as more authoritative than God. Sensitivity and sincerity has become the language of the church today. Don't, don't say that. You cannot call hell a, a reality for people because you're unloving. You can't judge churches because they mean well. Let me tell you this. They're going to be very sincere people in hell. God cares not about your sincerity. He cares about your salvation and your sanctification. The Reformation was not a complete event. 
Sola Scriptura was the initiation of the Reformation. But the Reformation in and of itself was not complete and they did not intend it to be complete. In fact, they thought that the church would continue on reforming, going back to the standard which is Scripture. I think it was Luther who said it needs to go back to its authentic roots. That is what we should be doing. When we have any practice or anything in our church that does not align with Scripture, I'm not talking about um, like having a music team or having uh, announcements and things like that. I'm talking about the, the foundational aspects of church, what God requires from a church. What should a church look like? What are some of the things that makes a church a church? At the end of the sermon, I will point out to you what those things are. So now, I'm going to upset some of you. The reformers had a reformed theology. But the reformers did not follow through on that reformed theology in their reformed practice. They did not have a reformed application. However... If the only thing that we look back to is the Reformation and the Reformers as the rule, we've missed the point of the Reformation. We don't celebrate the Reformation to celebrate Martin Luther, Zwingli, um, Wycliffe, all those great names. That is not the point of the Reformation. The Reformation is to celebrate that God by His grace caused the Reformation and brought His church back from the clutches of Roman Catholicism. Unfortunately, today we have elevated the reformers to a podium that they did not elevate themselves to. The whole point of the reformation was to point us to scripture so that we may see God. What are we doing? We are looking back at the reformation to see the reformers. We are masters at creating idols. Even in such a good and godly, God-given event, we have idolized the men whom God has used to create that event. There are staunch churches, reformed churches, who may not agree with me today, and there may be some of you as well. And as I've said so many times before, I don't preach for you. I'm not convicted by you. I'm convicted by the word of God to say the things that I must say. If you study the history of the church, especially the Protestant Reformation, the battle of the Reformation was not about how the gospel impacts our life. The battle was for the sanctity of the gospel. It was a theological reformation. But there are a lot of other things that needed reform. Some of the Catholic elements remained with Luther after he broke away from Rome. Some of the Catholic aspects remained with Calvin after he broke with Rome. Why? Because the point was not that they would change the church completely. They wanted to preserve the gospel. That's why the Latin phrase exists. So that the church would continue reforming. Sadly, many evangelical churches, so-called, are having an identity crisis. When I was 16, I had an identity crisis and I got a smack. My mom said to me, you will not have an identity crisis before my face. I have it behind my back, but not while I am with you. The church, in the very presence of God, is confused about what it is. Why do I say that? 
There's a wholesale acceptance of catechisms, liturgy, infant baptism, things uniquely and specifically Catholic that we refuse to break away from. I'm going to say to those Reformed churches, you are not Reformed enough. The whole purpose of the Reformation was to get to what God wants, not to what the church wants. The sale of the gospel has replaced the sale of indulgences. There are some evangelical churches that has compromised the perspicuity of scripture with regards to justification. Carl Truman, every year I try to read a book on the Reformation and I I know I read part of it last then so I wanted to finish it so I picked it up again um, a couple of weeks ago. He says, quote, I never cease to be shocked by how little I have in common with many others in the United Kingdom who now claim the name evangelical. I feel the same way. One can deny that God knows the future. One can deny that the Bible is inspired. One can deny justification is by grace through faith. One can deny that Christ is not the only way to salvation. One can do all these things and still remain a member in good standing of certain high-profile evangelical bodies, end quote. Wow. I won't mention a name, but there was a certain individual who said, well, God is not interested in how you get there, but only that you get there. So even for our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, they will be there. No, they will not if they do not come by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is the only way you get saved. Why do we have this? Because there's an ass- the appeal of liturgy, the appeal of creeds, the appeal of traditions, the appeal of catechisms has captivated the church. Because it looks structured, it looks holy, it looks churchly. I like the fact when our church was going this way, the seating was going this way, and you were facing this wall. Because it's not orderly. I'm not a guy who likes this order. But when people come in, I don't want to come in, come in and want to join the church because the church looks nice. I'm glad we have this building. Or the church has a high um, church feel to it. I like the fact that you guys talk before church. In some sanctuaries, you're not allowed to make a whisper. Because you're in the presence of God. More and more evangelical churches are employing catechisms and creeds. You don't need it. Find it in scripture. I said to my wife this morning, I read... Yeah, I'm going to mention his name. It's the Baptist uh, Catechisms. I forget the the year. But uh, the Baptist Catechism and John Piper comments on it. So the word catechism generally comes from the word katergeo, which means to teach. So he says, well, we get the English word from katergeo, which means to catechize. It doesn't mean that. It means teaching or or, or dissemination of information. So that aspect is what they've carried over in catechism. And so catechism generally is a question-answer format. So it's questions about God and the answer uh, and how it relates to the believer. Is it bad? No. But you don't need it. 
What do you need to live a godly life? What you need to please the Lord is the word of God. Somebody says, scripture alone is not enough. It's not good enough for us to say that. Well, hang on. I thought that the Reformation was founded upon sola scriptura. So how is scripture not enough? We find even in the application of the breaking of bread, it mimics what the Catholic Church does. You have to stand up, go to the front, and it's administered to you. I remember Jesus breaking the bread and passing it around. What are we doing then? Why are we not going back to the standard? Because the church stopped reforming. They are more concerned about how it looks and how it feels than what God says in His Word. Unfortunately, Sola Scriptura has become a house brand name in the evangelical church. We claim it, we profess it, but we are not governed by it. Prior to the domination of the Roman Catholic Church, there were no liturgical, creedal, traditional attachments to the church. Did they exist? Sure they did. Around about the 4th and 5th century, we already see the iconoclastic influences on the church, having icons, drawings on the walls and things like that. We already see creeds being implemented. That morphed into what the Catholic Church became. As with every aspect of the Christian life, as, as I think it was Jonathan Edwards says, that our hearts is um, a, an idol factory. We make idols of things. We've idolized liturgy. We've idolized catechisms. We've idolized infant baptism. And I'll get to that in a moment's time. Some churches are defined by it. This is what it means to be a Baptistic church. This is what it means to be a Presbyterian church. This is what it means to be an Anglican church. And we are okay with it. Why? Because sentiment triumphs the authority of Scripture. Our associations are far more important than what God has to say in His Word. Nehemiah demonstrates... That the word of God in and of itself by the pure reading and explanation of the word of God can change people. You don't need those things to please the Lord. A slow degradation back into the cult of Catholicism is going undetected in the evangelical church. Let me say it this way. Catholicism, the growth into that went undetected in the church at large. We see a shifting from God and the scriptures being focused to man being a focus. Unfortunately, the overemphasis of the individual in the pew has overtaken preaching. We exposit people's lives rather than the word of God. This is what you need to do This is what you need to think. This is what you need to uh, um, live by. Three principles for a godly life. What happened in Nehemiah? They opened, they read, they studied, and their lives were changed. Luther called the pulpit the throne for God's word. I call it the pulpit of God. 
It is God who places his preachers in his pulpit. It is from here that God speaks to his people. The focus of preaching is not you. The focus of preaching is the explanation of the word of God. It's the manifestation and declaration of who God is. And that is enough to change your life. If it doesn't, there is something wrong with us. The only thing we are concerned about today is the individual and not God. I want to know who God is. The scripture by nature is the revelation of God. It is not the revelation of you. Yet all we hear about today is, what about me? That's exactly what happened in the Catholic Church. It is no different today. The church has become problem solvers. Pragmatism has overtaken the church. And you may be thinking, well, what is the problem? What's your big deal about? Here it is. We claim to believe authorial intent, but we fail to follow through on God's intent in his word. If God requires us to live a certain way, I don't care who says what. You are required and are accountable before God. Even if I disagree, I would be wrong. And you need to point out to me that I am wrong. Because if God says it, that is what we must do. God determines how we live. Not the church, not a denomination, not a priest or a pastor. Unfortunately, the pastor has become your personal priest today. The only time there's a confession of sins is when we come together with God's people because then we get convicted. Then the scriptures convict us. If you're not spending time with the Bible at home, you will never be convicted by the Bible at home. The problem is that the church in the pew has become the focus Right down to the nitty-gritty of things, of how you ought to think as a believer. Scripture can do that by itself. All that God requires us is to explain his intent in the word of God. We've removed the power from God's word. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, look at verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, uh, and with earth that is dust on their heads. And Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sin and all the iniquities of the fathers. Not only theirs, but they recognized that this is a litany of sins that went unconfessed, and so they confessed the, the faults of their fathers as well. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of... Uh, Yahweh the God for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of it, they made confessions and worshipped Yahweh their God. You may have missed that, but it says that they stood and read for a quarter of the day. Amen. I think we need to apply that. And the other quarter... There was a natural response 
They confessed and worshipped. Why? The mere exposure to sola scriptura, the sufficiency of God, the authority of God in the words of scripture. We have replaced the power of God in the precision of scripture with the power of positive thinking. We have exchanged the work of God in sanctification to pastoral imperatives of a moral change. People want me to tell them how to change. I can't. Scripture tells us how to. Gives us the way to change. His divine power has granted to us all things for a life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. That's how we change. Invest your life in the word of God. We've ignored the work of God by the Spirit of God and elevated the work of people. Just give me five principles to live by. No, I won't give you principles to live by because the Scripture is filled with principles to live by. We're just lazy. We don't want to look for it for ourselves. I believe in the sufficiency of the word of God. I believe that the scripture in and of itself can change the life of God's people. The church must be reforming back to that. God has made sufficient provisions for us to be changed by his word. We grow when we are exposed to his word. What we often do not grasp is that there is a corollary, a connection, a natural outworking of the cheapening of God's grace and the life that goes with it, an ungodly life. Let me say it this way. When Johann Tessel, Tessel, get this name now, sold indulgences, the whole idea was if your um, uh, family member is caught in purgatory, all you need to do is pay a penny or whatever it was, and you would be delivering them from purgatory. Now we frown on that, and I believe that they've recanted from that. We frown on that, and we think, well, surely we don't do that. You may not be offering the, the deliverance of a soul from, from purgatory, But what happens when we offer the rewards that comes as a natural result of believing the gospel as a gift through giving? What happens when you go to a church and they say, well, if you give, God will bless you. What happens when you are in a church that says, if you show more faithfulness, have more faith, then only God will bless you. You know what that is? Selling the gift of God for a penny. What a lie. A weakened gospel will result in a weakened life. Luther understood well that the moral reform, apart from the theological reform, would only result in temporal change. But when the word of God changes you, it is an eternal change that has taken place. He's experienced it. Simply reading the book of Romans and then Galatians, God opened his eyes to the truth. 
They returned to the sufficiency of Scripture in all its parts, awakened a return to the authentic gospel. The Protestant Reformation focused on the return to this gospel by looking at God first and foremost, looking at Scripture as the ultimate source of salvation and not at man, not even the need of man, something the Catholic Church overlooked. The gospel reveals that there is something external to us that we need. And you will understand that by the plain, clear reading of Scripture. It is the gospel of God that captivates the sinner. It is God's grace by which the sinner is able to believe and become a child of God. The Catholic Church wanted to bring eternity to the individual by means of progressive change in the life of the individual. Pay and you will live. This is no different to evangelical churches who require certain things in order to be part of the church. Again, I may be stepping on some toes here. Why on earth would we have baptism, infant baptism, as a means to accept people into the church? Pause on that. I'll get back to that in a moment's time. When the glory of heaven or the associated blessings of that glory is only achievable through financial transaction, then you are offering nothing different to what medieval um, Roman Catholicism offered through the sale of indulgences. You have offered the glory of God's grace as a result of a financial transaction. That is cheapening the grace of God. When the lifting of the soul from the horrors of the hour can be affected from the emptying of the wallet, you have cheapened the grace of God to a financial. You have bought off God. Any church that guarantees your salvation or your sanctification by means of a penny in the pocket of the church has left the gospel. That salesman. And not soul winners. Similarly, the evangelical church is plagued with immoral failure because we believe a false gospel. The reformers understood that there must be a readjustment in the focus of the church. God and His Word must be central in the church in order for the church to be what God intends it to be. Another area that was recovered in the Reformation was not only the uh, recovery of um, Scripture and God, but also the centrality of Christ and the authentic gospel. I alluded to this in, um, early on. When Luther came to the realization, what God did for sinners, he realized the horrendous nature of sinfulness. See, the horror of sin is made manifest in God's love on the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, I believe. Was it 5 verse 8? God commends His love in that 5 8. While we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. God gives forth, commends His love 
in the horror of the cross. When when Luther came to understand this, that this is what God requires in order for man to be right with him, then sin is a lot more awful than I realized. If the only way that I can be right with God is the death of the Son of God, then sin is eternally horrendous before God. Listen to Calvin. Quote, For unless we realize our own helpless misery, we shall never know how much we need the remedy of Christ, or which Christ brings, nor come to him with fervent love we owe him. To know the true flavor of Christ, we must each of us examine carefully ourselves, and each must know himself condemned until he is vindicated by Christ. End quote. You must first see yourself as the decrepit, depraved, Sinner condemned before God is able to vindicate you. If you do not see yourself as that sinner, you will never come to understand what it means to have the worth of the cross be bestowed upon you. But if sin is merely a mistake, if sin is a personal struggle that can be removed by means of baptism... Why do you need the cross? Catholics do believe that baptism, infant baptism, deals with original sin. And I'll prove that to you in a moment's time. But if our sin offends the very righteousness of the Holy God, and it does, if perfect righteousness is the only way that you can be received and accepted by God, then there is nothing the sinner can do. There is absolutely nothing you can do to place yourself in the very presence of God as acceptable. It takes the death of the Son to deal with the depths of our sin. The wonder of all wonders. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. You will never achieve to righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. That means there is one way to God. This is what the reformers recovered. You don't get to work your way to God. There is one way. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Any other means, any other way, brings no glory to God. I like what one guy says, the jewel of the gospel is not your worth, but Christ who died for your sin. Wow. See, the gospel is not focused on you. The gospel is focused on the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and the appeasing of God's wrath. The only way that God can accept you to be in His presence is to deal with sin in His Son. What we find in the Catholic Church is the demoting of Christ and the exaltation of your effort. In Catholic theology, we work, we fulfill the sacraments, we obey the creeds, we live by the catechisms in order for us to please the Lord. 
Yet in many evangelical circles today, it is no different. Jesus has become a genie in a bottle. That's the difference, right? When you rub the bottle and the genie pops out. The only Jesus that some Christians know is the Jesus who meets their need. Physically. The only Christianity that some people are exposed to is a Christianity where Jesus answers your physical need. The only reward that they look forward to is the reward of physical need. Any church that offers the reward for giving more, for faithfulness, for living a life of godliness, have replaced the free gift of salvation and the eternal rewards that go with it to offer you your best life today. In such a church, the glory of Christ is snatched away and is displaced upon you. Calvin says, and I quote, Sin is hereditary, depravity, and corruption of our nature diffused in all our parts of the soul, which makes us first, which, which first makes us liable to God's wrath, then also brings us forth in then also brings forth in works which the scripture calls works of the flesh. End quote. Sin permeates an individual that is nothing that is that is able to sanctify in and of himself. This troubled Luther. How can a holy, righteous God be right with sinful man? Impossible, he cried. Impossible. Yes, it is. That is why it took the Son of God to bring you into fellowship with the Father. So God lays on him the fullness of his wrath that he would pour on you if you are not a believer. He takes the perfect righteousness of his son and lays it over to the sinner. And he takes the sinfulness of the sinner and lays it on the son. So that the sinner might become acceptable in the son. Being called a saint. The sinner can never work his way towards God. Now. Having sketched that important element about the recovery of the gospel and the centrality of Christ. The only way that you get saved is by means of Christ, through Christ. The only way that you get entrance into the church is how? Through Christ, right? That's the only way. Now, without Christ, there is no entrance into the church. Categorically, absolutely, no way. Yet, in churches today, you find that baptism, infant baptism, is the means to enter the church. Same guy, called Truman, let me read a quote from him. Reformed understanding baptism, quote, in covenantal terms, sorry, the Reformed understand baptism in covenantal terms as replacing Circumcision, follow along, as pointing back to God's unilateral commitment, that is to Israel, his covenant with Israel, to his people in the covenant of grace, which does not ever exist in scripture. But let's give them that. As such, like the Lutherans, the Reformed hold to infant baptism, but unlike the Lutherans, do not see baptism as the moment of regeneration. 
So that's good. They don't believe that baptism regenerates. But listen, so much. They don't believe, let me again, do not see baptism as a moment of regeneration so much as the sign of entry into the visible church, end quote. Did you catch that? How do you become a member of the church? Through infant baptism. Keep that thought. The Catholic Guide to Baptism. I'm going to read the Catholic Guide to Baptism. Quote, Children receive baptism primarily to remove original sin. Horrendous. But can serve as a great family tradition to initiate one's child into the faith of the family. And now they will explain this. There are five truths. I'm only going to read three. Five truths regarding this. Still quoting. It forgives all sins that might have been committed prior to the person's baptism, including original sin, mortal sin, and venial sins. And it relieves the punishment for those sins. Did you get that? Infant baptism deals with original sin. Now, I don't know how the infant commits sin before he's baptized. He's an infant. Okay. Secondly, it makes the newly baptized person a new creature. No, right? Thirdly, it turns the person into a newly adopted son of God and a member of Christ. Baptism incorporates a person into the church, which is the body of Christ, end quote. Besides all the other heresy, by replacing the work of the cross with baptism, because it is the death of Jesus Christ that deals with original sin, nothing else. It is only the death of Jesus Christ that deals with original sin. It is only the death of Jesus Christ and by faith, by grace through faith in him that you are accepted to become a member of God's people. They've replaced the work of God in Christ with a single act of baptism. But what shocked me is this last line, baptism incorporates a person into the church, which is the body of Christ. What do some evangelicals believe? Some reformed churches say it is a sign of entry into the visible church. That is the same language. Some reformed churches are saying exactly the same thing as the Catholics would say about baptism. Not the, the, the horrendous heresy about dealing with original sin, but entrance into the church. Why? Because they believe the same thing about the nature of the church. It replaced Israel, and so circumcision is replaced by infant baptism. That's a lie. It obliterates that whole idea of accepting infant baptism as a means to enter the church. Obliterates the cross. Because it's only by means of the cross that you can become a believer and accept it into the body. His body only comes to existence after the death on the cross. How do I know that? Ephesians chapter 2, please. I will end on this. There is so much more to say, but I'll make this my last point. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to verse 14. 
For he himself is our peace, speaking between Jew and Gentile, the separation between Jew and Gentile, because that's the context, who made us both one. So Jew and Gentile has been brought into one body and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. All that the Lord did was separate the Jews from Gentiles. Not, that's not all, but that's part of it. The cross abolishes that. That he might create in himself one new man. That is not your new man. That is the church. The new man there is the new body in place of two. So making peace. So he goes from, he made peace between you and us, Jews and Gentiles. How did he do it? By his death. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Wow. It's so clear. The body only comes to existence after the death. The, the way that it is brought into existence is through the cross. He destroys the separation between Jew and Gentile and creates a new man. It is new. It is not Israel reformed. It is a new entity. How then can you say that Baptism replaces circumcision and they, because we replace the, the nation of Israel, we become Israel today. How can you say that when the Bible says, God says that the church comes into existence by means of the cross? It is horrendous to believe infant baptism. It is shocking to say that a church, that, that a person can become can have entrance into the body by means of infant baptism. You have just obliterated the need for the cross. Like Catholics, some Protestants, Protestants believe the exact same thing about the church, Israel, baptism and circumcision. We cannot take this lightly. But because of sentiment, because of sentimentality, because of sensitivity, we don't take a stand on this. I am very forceful about my view on baptism. Because baptism is an act of obedience. And I don't have the time to come on Wednesday. We will look at it. It's an act of obedience. It is in the Great Commission. How on earth are we able to apply the Great Commission in bringing them to become disciples when part of that process is what? Teaching and baptizing. Tell me how you make a disciple from a, a, an infant with an infant so they say well they're innocent babies are innocent so their baptism covers their innocence until they get to the age of understanding interestingly if you have a child <laughs> you will know that a baby is not innocent my former mentor said the demon in diapers, they let you know they are not sanctified. That is a sinner, as cute as he or she is, is a sinner in your arm. They are not innocent before God. Does God have special grace? Well, we can discuss that on, on Wednesday. Protestant churches, Lutheran, Anglican, Baptist catechisms are remnants of Catholic practices. You may not agree, but it didn't start in the early church. It morphed into what became the Catholic church. 
And it was followed through, through the Middle uh, Ages, even through the Reformation. So am I saying that Calvin and, and Luther was wrong on baptism? Well, not so much Calvin, but Luther, yes. Luther was wrong on infant baptism. Am I saying that they were wrong in catechisms? Yes, they were wrong in catechisms. You see, they did not intend to reform those aspects, yet they believed that the church needed reformation in those areas, in other areas, not those areas. The Anabaptists recognized that adult baptism is most consistent with Scripture. To believe anything else is to to disobey the very command of God. To believe anything else is to disobey the very command of God. And so, John Blaurock was the first to be baptized as an adult. You know what happened to him? He got drowned because he got baptized as an adult. If you got baptized in the Middle Ages, you would die because of your association with that movement. Yet we tread very lightly when it comes to baptism. We allow people to live the way they want, to do what they want. God does not. If you believe, you must be baptized. It's that simple. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for the Reformation. We are thankful to you for the people that you raised up in the Reformation. And we know that that was not the end. There is still reforming that needs to take place in the life of your church. There are so many Catholic elements that are still present in your church. Lord, give your men whom you have placed in leadership in various churches around this globe the conviction to break away, to take a stand and say that this is not biblical. We want to honor the Lord, and so, yes, we will break away from the liturgy, the catechisms, the infant baptism, the traditions, and the creeds that is not necessary to honor you. You are honored when your word is magnified, when it is exalted. You are honored when your son is preached in all the clarity that your scripture declares. You are honored when your word is honored in the church. Forgive us, Lord. We are a confused and lazy people. We do not study your word as we should, and we do not revere it as much as we should. Be gracious to us, and please, O oh God, be patient with us. Change us to become the kind of people you want us to be. For your glory and for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.